0: This is Democracy Manifest. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. It is a horrible idea that there is somebody who owns us, who makes us, who supervises us, uh, okay. who can convict us of Fort you know well. just for what we watching? watch it. We have to get through. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. All this could be part of a plan. Oh. Looks to me like a place where you'd get revenge on your crazy professors. Have a look at the, the headlock here. This technique is perfect. It is sweet and wonderful. G-Sargang, have a plan. Postmodernist nonsense. They intend to hijack the goat. I say, well, how would you describe the prison scene? I said, baby, it was just wrong, to wrong. This technique no is one It's these odds. Culture and anarchy. Sweet, 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 sweet. democracy manifest. Honey, wake up, Ugh. wake up, Ugh. Ugh. all right, I got it, hello, welcome to the waking up podcast, who is this, this is Sam Harris, <sighs> Sam, no, Sam, Sam, listen, Trump is not Hitler, it's okay, it's okay. I'm just going to get a little more sleep. Stop calling, Sam. Stop calling. Just a little more sleep. Hello? Alright, I'm up. I'm up. What a morning. Alright, you know what time it is. He is snoozing on Sam Harris. Trump is uniquely fit for an unfit presidency. I was awakened from my dogmatic slumber this morning by nightmares of a monster of selfishness and self-regard. And as I finally turned off the alarm on my iPhone... So I had a new podcast from Sam Harris, entitled The Most Powerful Clown, which is a post-election recap of Harris's pessimistic views upon Trump's ascension to power. And several weeks later, I was treated to Sam's discussion with a hawkish little neoconservative troll, Jamie Kirchik, providing a neoconservative autopsy of the election from the perspective of a never-Trumper. It seems that no matter where I look, no matter who it is that I query personally, I keep hearing people trying to encapsulate 130 million votes with a single comprehensive narrative pattern in order to reconcile to themselves something jarring that has happened. And then the narratives are calculated not to explain the phenomenon, but instead to reassure each narrator that their own particular political preconceptions can go forward secure in the knowledge that the Trump phenomenon was a temporary disturbance of the force, that voters were the ones who made the final call, and not the parties or the candidates, and that the Trump slide was not a permanent disruption of progress, but a force of history and an inevitability, either for a good reason or due to political bungling of misinformation and quote-unquote fake news. Americans love conspiracy theories, even the least skeptical consumers of media, and they love to conspiracize their own political narratives to paint themselves as rational actors in an irrational political system. But democracy is messy, It is not a singular narrative. Democracy is not found in the nonfiction section. Part of it is stashed in poetry and economics, and part of it is found in self-help, sexuality, and religion and philosophy. But the greatest part of democracy is to be found on the vast shelves of the fiction section. More than anything, Trump has caused many Americans to probe other people's biases and preconceptions, and to hold their own biases and preconceptions constant, even if those biases do not match up with reality. Most of us are in the fiction section, and will remain there, convinced that we are standing elsewhere in history and biography. Sam's interview with Kirchak was a strange alliance of intellects that alerted me to something Harris did not quite understand, and which Kirchak has been denying since 2007, since Kirchak is more a partisan neocon pundit than an objective journalist, and certainly had little in the way of rational argumentation to offer someone like Sam Harris. Furthermore, the conversation between Harris and Kirchak was one of narration and self-help, and not a fact-gathering and objective analysis. Libertarians might recall Kirchik as the, quote, journalist, close quote, and neocon operative who repeatedly attempted to kneecap Ron Paul in his 2008 and 2012 campaigns over the Ron Paul newsletters by rehashing something irrelevant to both of the campaigns, which Paul had disavowed in 2001, and which were easy to spin as relevant in order to cripple a threat to the neoconservative establishment and the warmongering Bill Crystal wing of the Republican Party who refused to give up W's high-dollar foreign policy. Ron Paul was a principled libertarian statesman who actually believed what the GOP only ever talked about when it wished to pander to its party and mislead the base as to its intentions. And Paul was incredibly popular in gaining momentum in the 2008 and 2012 primaries, inspiring the creation of the Tea Party that the GOP establishment and Fox News hijacked after kneecapping Paul's campaigns. The urgency was much greater when the Kirchiks of the world panicked, as Paul again took on the establishment with a populist uprising against the Giulianiites and the Romney-Republicans in his second run of the presidency as a Republican. Paul was the first populist to challenge the GOP from within in the last three elections, someone who could bridge the peaceniks, the Libertarians, and the Republican base. But he was a principled populist who shook the foundation of the GOP primaries and fired up a generation of Libertarians and never neocons. Kirchak and I saw something very different in Trump, as well as something familiar. For Ron Paul supporters like myself, who believe in individual liberty, limited government, and sound monetary policy, we saw in Trump a loudmouth lout with occasional bright spots, with regard to his skepticism involving foreign intervention and corporate tax cuts, and not much else, who finally managed to alienate the GOP from the wretched, warmongering jingos amongst the neocons, who drop bombs on every brown person imaginable in every country they believed and get away with it while calling their opponents within the GOP racists and anti-Semites. Over the past two years, as Trump was rapidly unseating the GOP's hatchet men and stooge candidates, I cheered on the overthrow of Kirchek's compatriots, who are always in the wrong and getting ever wronger, even though I did not cheer the rise of Trump. And as I listened to Kirchak bandy words and insults with a more collected Sam, I heard a man who might be the only man alive other than Bill Kristol, or perhaps John McCain, who would have blithely shoved slim Pickens out of the saddle to assume a front-road seat at the dawn of World War III, riding the bomb he loved so much to his destination in some forsaken land amidst the OPEC block in the name of world peace. But then, Kirchak is primarily a neoconservative operative, and not a principled researcher, thinker, historian, or journalist. And this is fine, as it were. I respect his right to propose the government that he desires but he should be more honest about his intentions. When campaign season arrives, he picks up a hatchet, rather than interviewing those whose scalps he attempts to take, in a neoconservative game of counting coup. He throws bombs. He and his other neocons libel their libertarian opponents as anti-Semites and racists, utilizing the left's most disreputable tactics, because those who believe in principles of government at odds with the neocons must be evil, and not men of principle. It is always hypocritical and ironic that the neocons so often lampoon the leftist loonies and their identity politics, since this is always the first tool that the neocons pick up to cut down their opponents within the GOP during the primaries. To question whether foreign policy should be skewed so heavily towards Israel is to be an anti-Semite. Hence, Kirchik's slander against Trump, who he accuses of being anti-Semitic, but who is clearly not. I do not say this to defend Trump so much as to point out Kirchik's objectives within the creed of journalism that he practices. And to be clear, I do not hold Kirchik in contempt because he is a neocon or an opponent to Ron Paul, because he is unschooled in every little branch of libertarian theory or economic principle, or because he is a bomb thrower. I entirely respect an individual's right to criticize candidates, and I respect every American's responsibility to investigate candidates and journalism for bias and inconsistency to formulate his worldview in accordance with his own beliefs. But I do hold Kirchak in contempt, because he is an advocate for spending my taxes upon the murder of foreigners and toppling their governments in an endless chain of gun-running, agitating, and fomenting international disorder while ballooning the national debt upon the backs of my children, and about which he simultaneously complains as if forgetting that regime change costs us a pretty dime. This, to me, crosses the line of politics. There is no compromise to be reached here, Such was Paul's position, and such was his voting record in the House. I will not settle for a quota of dead Muslims in countries who do not attack us, as if there were some middle road between a rational foreign policy and neoconservative psychopathy. Mass murder via intergenerational promissory note is a disgusting amoralism and something approaching tax slavery, and its preachers are vile to me, as vile as a jihadist, a socialist dictator, or a KGB gangster. His jihad were better waged on his own dime, for whose cruelties he should answer to the victims and avengers of such crimes by taking up arms as a mercenary instead of hiding behind the American populace, which bears the brunt of the blowback for the kinds of intolerance and international meddling that he preaches. Sam has far more class than Jamie, but how he could ever think that he has something in common with Bill Kristol and Jamie kirchick only makes me think twice about how Sam views his own political ideals. I will give Sam the benefit of a doubt. He is no preacher of hatred and institutional murder. He is searching for a rational compromise in an irrational political system of democracy. He, no doubt, found kinship in Kirchick's never-Trump sentiments. And in this, too, I see something principled. But only to a certain extent. The principle cannot simply be, I oppose Trump because he is not hawkish enough to commit himself to a heaping body count worthy of George W. Bush. And the principle cannot simply be, I oppose Trump because he is uniquely unfit for office. It is not only important to be correct or ethical in one's criticism, but it is important to comprehend why an argument tends towards consistent ethics and logical consistency, lest a wrong reason lead us into future error due to faulty calculations based upon such errors. We must be clear that our best calculations are made in the non-fiction section, and not just in the most popular aisle of the fiction section. The question of never Trump is always balanced by my insistence upon the question of never Hillary. While I think that Trump will be bad for liberty and may continue the wars, though he gives me signs of hope that he will not, Hillary has always been an enemy of individual liberty, and she fomented needless wars even before she reached the Oval Office. The heap of corpses in Libya alone stands as evidence that she should never have the reins of power, since the blood was already upon her hands. Usually a person has to become a president before she can scalp a Middle Eastern world and triumph in the decimation of the third world. In the election, Trump's qualifications were a comparative question. But now that he has won, he can only be compared to other executives and to principles of government. But for those without principles, Trump's qualifications and successes will be a question of historical comparison only. And Hillary, thanked the fates, may finally be purged from the American stage. One hopes, lest she pops up again in four years somewhere in the horror section. Like many liberals, and I do not mean this as a slight, Sam has no idea what is going on within the politics of the opposing party, and more especially within the libertarians and populists who also oppose the GOP, the neocons, and the Democrats. The GOP is a meeting ground between centrists, libertarians, Bible thumpers, mild anti-socialists, and neocons. The neocons have held sway since the end of the Cold War, when they saw their victory, Really, it was the inevitable collapse of Soviet communism's anti-economic logic codified into an ethical system. As a mandate to police the world as an imperial power and to continue the infinite military growth that the triumphant and bellicose national security statists, mostly Republican, believed was the causal agent of the Cold War's resolution. In truth, socialism collapsed because central planning is unworkable. America survived the Cold War but it too was now plagued by a military-based central planning. A realignment of the economy towards something other than military superpower and unlimited ammunition would have required an economic recession similar to usual post-war recessions. But the Cold Warriors did not wish to appear weak in their triumph, so they pushed ahead to become the greatest superpower on Earth. This might explain how Harris was so confused by the rise of Trump and why he bought into the media hype concerning Trump's unique unfitness for office. Trump was unpopular on the right amongst the professional politicians, mostly because he strayed so far from the military history section and over towards self-help, to heal a nation's murdered psyche, or so Trump and his army would tell themselves as they wimpled right into a new fiction section. Trump is unique, but he is not uniquely unfit for office the GOP is always a party of faction. But some factions tend to rule the primaries and dominate the money brokers of the party to craft the cyclical narrative as one of fiscal responsibility, even though the Republicans tend to increase government spending by a wider margin than do Democrats. Since the Cold War, the neocons have pulled the strings. 2016 was largely a rejection of the neocons who Hillary Clinton admits she respected as statesmen, though disagreeing with their policies. Well, Trump disrespected those statesmen and their policies. Out of self-preservation, some of the neocons converted, kicking and screaming along the way. The others sulked and threw tantrums in the children's section. And good riddance to the neocons. Farewell, adieu, goodbye, and hopefully forever. Michael Moore's sentiments on Trump's rise, as a forgotten middle-class American's finger to the establishment, might explain some votes in the surprise swing states but it does not describe the support that I plumbed amongst the Trump supporters that I knew. I tend to disbelieve that narrative in large part, since it is a romantic narrative that even conservatives tend to prefer to tell about themselves, and I tend to find that the stories people prefer to tell about themselves are false, even if comforting. I am more apt to think that Trump recognized the failure of brokered politics. He could say anything he wished, probed any subject that he desired, and no donors would pull their backing so long as he funded his own campaign. That was the gist of the strategy at its base. If he proclaimed that the system was rigged, and that the candidates were bought, and all of them were actually bought as a matter of fact, the one constant upon which he could count, and the two-party system is rigged by the parties by default, then he could undermine their credibility and appear more controversial than he actually was. He pushed immigration where nobody else could, lest their big-money corporate donors pull their support. And the more that the establishment candidates balked at his success, because he could tread where the brokered candidates could not, the more he could collect voters as his opponents fell by pegging every successive survivor as a pawn of the elites and the establishment, which they inevitably were. He played marginal politics, where others played at wholesale branding campaigns, and he played it to perfection. This was not a con, it was a calculation. It was a populist calculation, and it succeeded where previous populist risings on the right had failed, the Perots, Buchanans, and Pauls, because Trump could self-fund where others could not. The rest is all just storytelling, despair, poetics, and self-congratulation. To understand an economy, one has to understand each and every single human action, moment by moment. A state is engineered in the attempt to order an economy into something that can be digested empirically, as a proxy for economy beyond a state's ever-aspiring will to power and expropriation. It is always messy, representational, and a mere simulacrum of reality, and the narrative spun from that fabric to make sense of the representation will not touch the stuff of reality, despite what the victors and the losers have to say. The Trumpists were largely people downright exasperated with interventionist, big-spending, backstabbing neocons who always renege on campaign promises for smaller government. It's not that the Trumpists actually wanted smaller government, but they liked the idea of it. They were people that wanted answers for national security, where homegrown Islamic jihadis were causing them to question Bush's wisdom of fighting them over there so that we would not have to fight them over here. We are, nowadays, fighting them both over here and over there. And Hillary's role in destabilizing Libya helped spark the migrant crisis, landing potential future problems on our front doorsteps in the refugee sponge campaign due to our constant involvement in the proverbial, over there. The issue at stake was not Islamophobia and xenophobia, It was Bushophobia and Hillaryophobia, the legacy of two terrible political dynasties, whose failures were about to be visited upon the average voter who never explicitly consented to the wars, that were never declared, and were waged by unchecked executive powers. The average Trump voter actually did want lower taxes and a freer economy, and she would latch on to anyone, even Donald J. Trump, who might oppose the neoconservative establishment, as well as the neoconservative Democrat Hillary Clinton, because Trump fought so hard with humor, subversive arguments, style, vulgarity, and vigor. If Trump was anti-PC, he wasn't just anti-social justice warrior. He was an anti-neocon. He did not speak neocon. His strategy was well-positioned to pick up the largest block of voters in his masterful execution of a hostile takeover of the GOP. Since almost everyone hates the neocons, even the neocons who cannot define neocon and ardently believe that they are not neocons, <clears throat> Giuliani, Christie, Jeb, etc., In a party of sacred cows, Trump was willing to slaughter the beef and show that it was mere meat after all. Voters began to ask the vital question, Qui bono? These Republican faithfuls wore the deplorables tag as a badge of honor, as did the libertarians who voted for and against Trump, since they have often borne the slanders of liberal elites who cover for intellectual shallowness of political principles with mere insults. And these same cultural, ideological, social, and political libertarians rejected the slanders usually directed at them by the officious GOP-PC police. I laughed when Trump emerged from the primaries and the Democrats celebrated because I figured them dead in the water. I knew that Trump would likely trounce them because he had the ultimate target for his campaign and a corrupt, moneyed oligarch up to her britches in bankster cash and criminality. Apparently, the self-congratulatory Democrats had paid little to no attention to the entire GOP primary where the GOP fought Trump tooth and nail and still proved no match for the Teflon Don, who was not beholden to anyone, the Democrats imagined that something entirely different had happened. They spun a narrative of incompetence, and assuredly, it was somewhat true. But what was true in that narrative was practically gospel in their own case. What we saw in 2016 was a conservative base that was more fiscally conservative than the GOP elites, in the sense that they wanted to waste money domestically rather than internationally, and who wanted to wipe the slate clean of the sanctimonious Bible-thumpers and war-drummers if their own candidates, the followers of Rand Paul, Carly Fiorina, Ben Carson, and other undercard upstarts, were not to win. The overthrow of the neocons in itself was probably a good thing for us all, And it gave pleasure to most Republicans to finally see them switching their votes for Hillary Clinton as the ultimate betrayal of a party over which they now had no control because Donald Trump did not need their bribes or sanction for his campaign. He was able to do what no populist could do. He could fund his campaign and cut the puppet strings of mere millionaire politics influenced by the likes of Bill Kristol and Jamie Kierczak. The millionaires had customarily dominated the political scene, and the neocon intellectuals could steer those millionaires in the right direction. But Trump did not need the millionaires this go-around. After all, Trump was a freaking billionaire. He was a politician of a whole other class. What went wrong, and how bad is this? asked Sam Harris. Well, that depends. How bad was Hillary Clinton? How bad was Jeb Bush? How bad was Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders? The question about the badness of a president is never a metaphysical question of how bad this is in and of itself. Such would entail political principles by which degrade potential abuses of power. And as far as I can tell, the only people equipped to ask that question are those who believe in constitutional principles and sound economic theory. Limit the executive office and Trump is a molehill. Expand it to prosecute 15-year wars, to kill American citizens without trial, to detain citizens indefinitely without trial... Well, then hell, the world is the executive's oyster. So how bad is Trump's election when we consider how badly W. and Obama expanded the presidential powers and a perversion of executive authority? Well, bad. Very bad. Despite what Sam thinks, George W. Bush and the abortion of an administration that he birthed was not as popular amongst the GOP base as he probably thinks. The GOP's base will tend to vote against the welfare social democrats almost on principle without examining the warfare socialism inherent in the GOP. And they will defend their candidates by generally pointing a finger at the wretched statesman on the other side, pushed out by the millionaire donors and the communist billionaires like George Soros. They cling to slogans and catchwords. W was popular with the donors and the neocons who influenced them, and was popular as the man who defeated the rival governments proposed under Al Gore and John Kerry. And to be honest, I really don't think many people who voted for Hillary Clinton earnestly believed in her policies. She was a wretched and detestable harpy. Most Democrats voted against the rival government proposed, and for identity politics as the next stage of the fulfillment for the progressive millennium and the end of history for the white male executive, and especially against the media narrative spun around Trump's personality, both the real one and the one promoted by fake news outlets like CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. They clung to slogans and buzzwords in the absence of principles. But I don't know many conservatives who voted for W that actually liked the man's politics when pressed, nor a single Clinton voter who knew, prior to my informing them, of Hillary's role in Libya beyond the Benghazi debacle, since I have found that most of them shied away from admitting their like for the man as anything but a symbol of 9-11, or for a woman who had a vagina and was willing to put that menopausal vagina center stage as her primary credential. How could they like W's lefty politics and his approach to spending? How could liberals explain away Hillary's clear-cut corruption? Democracy begets befuddling questions. How can fiscal conservatives love fiscal demolitionists? How can social justice warriors vote for war criminals? W helped tank the economy and he blew out every budget, spending more than any president other than Barack Obama, and third on that list is Reagan, ironically. Bill Clinton, Hillary's economic guru, created the bubbles that Bush saw to their completion. The Never Trump group was, for the most part, comprised of neoconservatives, who are neither fiscally nor constitutionally conservative because their principles violate fiscal and constitutional conservatism, that felt alienated by the group who were all too happy to reject their proposed tyrannies and soppy, perennially losing candidates who were slaughtered by political correctness over mere binders of women. Trump could grab a pussy. The neocons could not, since they were grasping wildly for anything that they could find over on the speculation and conspiracy theory shelf. Full disclosure, I've never voted for a Republican presidential candidate in a general election and am not myself a conservative, voting only Libertarian, but I tend to vote in Republican primaries. This year for Rand Paul, even though he'd already suspended his campaign when I voted for him, just to undermine the GOP elites and the warfare socialists like Jamie Kerchak. But for every Trump supporter that I knew, and I know more of them than I do Hillary supporters, few of them initially began as supporters for Trump. Instead, they latched their fortunes onto the Trump train when their candidates began to fall by the wayside because they found the alternatives to be weak-willed lickspittles so beholden to the big-money donors that they would not confront issues like immigration in the unapologetic manner that Trump did. And as the GOP quailed under criticism of the Democrat pundits proving that they were too afraid to speak their minds before their voters, and to strike honest positions on the Syrian migrant question and the abuse of the American taxpayer for the sake of a foreign intervention, voters saw through the con. If the candidates would not stand for principles before ascending to office, those candidates would not stand for principle after obtaining the scepter. And Trump appealed to the centrist and to some conservative libertarians who just wanted a convenient exit from a stupid two-decade war that they only ever apologized for because they hate the socialist policies of white liberals at home. A man who is willing to say that Bush lied us into war might have the gall to stomach the truth that, even if a liar on every other subject, he might have to lie us out of the war in order for the war to end. And for that the GOP's base was willing to put up with Trump's scandals and faults and his lack of principles, especially when they compared his scandals to the wretched woman leading the Democrat Party who was hounded by her own scandals and faults concerning the abuse of governmental power and who displayed contemptible moral and political cowardice when confronted with real issues like immigration, the Syrian and Libyan migrant question, in which she played a large part as a causal agent, and Islamic terrorism. Hillary could never tell the truth for the truth was the undoing of her whole vagina platform. Hillary was a wretched and corrupt candidate that the Democrats intentionally wished to promote. Trump was an aberration that both parties fought, and for whom the voters fought in order to overcome the GOP masters despite them, as well as to stab off the principle of rewarding corruption on the other side with more power. 2016 was a rejection of party politics that will be framed as the remaking of the party and will probably result in something worse when the millionaire donors resume their status in the next two election cycles. In his podcasts and blogs on the subject of Trump, Sam Harris was kind enough to raise a new alarm in order to point me past the hecton hears of the Democrat Party ordering secret drone strikes in six countries, five regime changes in the Middle East, and thousands of civilian deaths and half a million dead amidst the chaos of imperial order and the cradle of civilization where the American war machine makes play with puppets and nations and to view, through my sleep-encrusted eyes, the real threats of the nation, the domestic Briarius of a thousand anecdotal vagina grabs hulking over the American electorate. In his blog post, Trump in Exile, Sam wrote, It is a cliché, of course, to claim that a presidential election is the most important living memory. But we arrived at that point in the 2016 campaign many months ago, when both sides declared their opponent unqualified for office. Unfortunately, this time the cliche is true, and one side is actually right. A choice this stark proves that there is something wrong with our political system. It is true, Trump is an amoralist, he is cocky, he is brash, he is a complete and utter boor. I'll admit that he may prove to be a threat to liberty as great as W and even Obama, the king of domestic spying. He might prove worse than those two scoundrels, who were perhaps the two worst presidents in U.S. history. Trump's sexual history may be a thing of infamy, but Sam appears to have confused the mainstream media smear campaigns with reality, trusting to the mounting stories that were debunked by nearly every individual with an ounce of skepticism in mere minutes. If the cliché was true, then it was true of both sides. And this I can say honestly, even in hindsight, as a man who rooted for the fall of the neocons while refusing to vote for Trump on principle, and confronting him honestly where dishonest media spun misinformation. Sam was of a different opinion. To consider only one point of comparison, we have now witnessed Donald Trump bragging about his sexual predations in terms that not even Satan himself could spin to his advantage. He has admitted to repeatedly groping women, kissing them on the mouth without their consent, and invading the dressing rooms of teenage pageant contestants to see them naked. Every day, more women come forward confirming the truth of these confessions. Contrary to what Sam believes, Trump is probably not a sexual assaulter, where the anecdotes involve hinge upon words like probably, or it might have been, or I did not recognize him, but my friends told me afterwards that it was Trump, or I can't recall when it was, or I didn't recognize him until 15 years later when he was running for the presidency, or, the media first approached me. Or, I never considered it to be assault until I heard the Access Hollywood tapes. Where none of the accusers is willing to step forward and charge him in court. Where the accuser would then have to put up her own liberty as collateral to make the charges worthy of consideration. And where the accuser's narratives, whose factual groundings are inconsistent or non-existent, were manufactured to pattern upon Trump's hot mic conversation in which he was actually most likely to distort the truth in order to impress his gang of Hollywood lackeys with lascivious anecdotes about buying beautiful women furniture in order to get permission to touch their naughty bits. And where Trump admits that even then, he struck out after showing one woman his exquisite furniture. Trump's hot mic comments were pathetic and they made me feel contempt for a man who felt that he had to brag to his celebritarians about his sexual prowess in a vulgar manner. He was right to be embarrassed by his comments. Sam, a skeptic I suppose, is not skeptical enough to confront the accusation with the honesty and delicacy required. Nobody should be believed by default. Neither a prophet nor a rape victim. Accusations must be backed up with evidence, and if no evidence is provided, And if nobody is willing to press charges, then there is nothing to believe or disbelieve. What remains is an unfounded allegation, a mere narrative. But since the accusations fell within the range of the 50% of sexual harassment court cases that never make it to trial because they lack sufficient standing, it was impossible for Trump to prove a negative. This is precisely why the accusations were so unbelievable in their timing and in their aggregation. One had a duty to disbelieve them without evidence to corroborate their veracity, and hearsay and speculation formed the root of nearly every one of the cases prosecuted in the public sphere by the yellow press. I actually looked into most of the sexual assault allegations a month ago on a podcast on the subject, right in the midst of the breaking headlines, and noted instance after instance of shoddy fact-gathering, stories written in ignorance, witnesses compiled with a complete lack of skepticism and rigor to test consistency, and pieces published without any sense of journalistic integrity or fact-checking in the rush to get anti-Trump material to press for no other reason than to smear the GOP's candidate, both for the edification of the her Trumpers and his Democrat opponents. This was interesting to me, since the Trump sexual assault allegations were more an evidence of the coarsening of journalistic culture than of a coarsening of culture. And the coarsening of culture was so much in discussion by those who were actually coarsening journalism, while acting as mere tabloid paparazzi bitching about the coarsening of culture. Again, I am not a Trump supporter, but I am always skeptical of stories that get such uniform reporting across headlines so quickly, since the narratives are complex and rarely simple. I tend to suspect shoddy workmanship, and there was much shoddy workmanship to be found during the resurgence of the yellow press in the anti-Trump crusade. As a Libertarian, a minority of persons, as well as a Big L Libertarian, a minority party, this was a reminder that my own interest will never win a huge election until the electorate rejects the biased mainstream media outright. Gary Johnson was sunk over, and what is Aleppo? Trump could only survive a pussy grab because he was a self-funder. Our best bet, and my own calculation in trying to get the LP to reach 5% for the sake of a primary, is to carve out enough of a block that the two parties will have to confront sound economic logic if they want to defeat their rivals, and to thus exert an exogenous pressure where internal reform is impossible. Trump has treated the press as if they were mere paparazzi, and more, in his victory, he has proven that the press is not much better than the paparazzi when they are pressed. I relish his treatment of the press, because until they cease to act like dogs, perhaps they should be leashed to a tree outside of the restaurant and be forced to beg for scraps from the walking, talking, genital-grabbing, bushy-haired payday. All of this, Harris believes, makes Trump uniquely unfit for office. And horror of all horrors, Trump actually believes that climate change is a hoax. Well, in the sense that climate change is both a political movement driven by international socialism, as well as a scientific hypothesis, it certainly has some hoaxing in it, if only for the former reason. Climate change is not the air to debates over whether evolution should be taught in public schools. Climate change is a debate over economic autocracy and international socialism. Socialists have the worst record with regard to climate, as well as economics, since socialism is anti-economic illogic, codified into an ethical system. So even if we admit that humankind is having an effect on the climate, and I'll admit that it does appear to be having a mild effect, despite the fact that the world's best minds on the topic are everywhere failing to explain how or why their temperature increase projections, keep failing to keep up with the multiplier they plug into their widely inaccurate and incomplete models, and the world warms at a barely noticeable rate well below the predictions, or not at all. Even if we allow that thesis, there is certainly some intellectual hoaxing on the left due to the alarmism and the prescriptions, which are economically disastrous. Now granted, Trump probably knows next to nothing about global warming, about the climate change theory, which is inexact and model-based in the same way that Keynesian economies are model-based and inflated, and the legitimate climate skeptics who may or may not be correct, and how feedbacks work, how natural dampening mechanisms work to sink the heating, and how warming effects and relative oxygen scarcity are good for the world's green plants, but then, who thinks that Obama and Hillary Clinton know much about climate change beyond Al Gore's factually inconsistent movie or what socialists the world over promote as part of universal regulation mandates aimed at the United States, much less what they know of a single point of climate change skepticism. A man or woman can be correct for the wrong reasons, just as he or she can be wrong for the wrong reasons. A witch doctor who cuts off a victim's gangrenous green finger because he believes a green demon lives within that finger has done his client a favor. The problem is that if the witch doctor universalizes the prescription... The village is in for a world of hurt and a generation of limbless miscreants. And I am apt to think that this will best explain the Trump presidency over the next four years. Trump will often be wrong, and even when he happens to be right, he will probably be right for the wrong reasons. We know how dangerous this can be because we know that humans tend to confirm their biases, rather than searching for right reason. And we know that humans who are wrong for all of the wrong reasons, like the secular socialists, almost never considered that their whole world view might be wrong because it is unprincipled and unfixed to logic. When Turkey finally unleashes its 3 million migrants upon Europe, as I imagine it will within the next four years since it has repeatedly threatened to do so when faced with the Eurobloc's treatment of our shaky, increasingly Islamist ally who currently holds 40 to 50 of our nukes on an airbase, I am apt to think that most of us will be gracious that it is Trump who opposes their admission into the United States, and that it is not Hillary Clinton ushering them onward at $67,000 per head. Trump will probably be correct in his early opposition to the migrants, who are not citizens of this country, and thus should not be receiving taxpayer money, and usually for the wrong reasons. But if we get the right policy for the wrong reason, which may be the best that we can hope, this is still better than getting the wrong policy for the reasons that the left wrongly considers right. Generally, topics like climate change are boiled down to catchwords, or an in-group social code transferred memetically that says, look, I'm sophisticated, or I'm avant-garde, or we speak the same progressive lingo. I remember assigning my composition students amidst a section based on definition writing the responsibility of watching a debate between Romney and Obama in 2012, asking them to determine if healthcare and health insurance were consignificant terms and then to evaluate how those terms would be bandied about. None of them was fooled by the lingo back then, when they had been alerted as to the differing definitions treated as singular things. But the lingo tends to win where people are fooled by doublespeak. I've been reading climate change or global warming literature for decades, as well as the skepticism, and I am no more convinced it is a problem than that it is a blessing. It is certainly nothing worth raising socialist alarm bells about, either. Of that I stand 100% assured. A Kyoto Protocol or a UN cooling resolution is an international economic bailout, a stand-in for tariffs and protection rackets, not a scientific hypothesis. And in this, Trump is certainly on the right side of the issue for the wrong reason. And the climate change alarmist, the socialist policymakers, are wrong for all of the worst possible reasons. Is Trump unfit for the White House? In a purest sense, on the grounding of principles in constitutional government, Yes, Trump is unfit for the office, but democracy is messy and illogical, and it does not promote virtue since it is, by design, mob rule, which has nothing of virtue in it. That a large group of people hold a certain opinion and then wish that the minority of society should be forced to obey the majority's enlightened views, or that a given portion of society wishes to vote the possessions of others into their own private hoards or to siphon that wealth away into the projects that some group of individuals would prefer to favor over other projects, this is nothing that smacks of virtue, correctness, ethics, peace, social order, or dignity. This is looting, plain and simple. Democracy remains one of the worst forms of government imaginable, but we have so far been spared its totalitarian excesses because we have a functioning marketplace, a bill of rights, and an electoral college. In some limited sense, these stave off the totality of democracy, each in its own way. The question of Trump's fitness for a political office is a comparative one, and not strictly one of virtue. When we question whether Trump should run the largest democracy in the world, with the most flagrantly active military and a history of disregard for foreign sovereignty and its own imperial endeavors, one wonders how anyone could be fit for such a power. The question answers itself. No. Under no circumstances should, insert preferred pronoun here, be given such power. Change the variable. The answer remains the same. So the question I would ask in return is as follows. Unfit compared to what? To Hillary? To Obama? To Ted Cruz? To Hitler? To me? This was an election of conspiracy theories. On the left, the seedy underbelly of white supremacy was reaching back up from the historical legacy of Jim Crow... Or perhaps Donald Trump was a fascist dictator looking to woo the public into a new program against Hispanics because he wanted to deport more Hispanics than Obama, who had already set a high watermark if Trump was going to beat him at his own game. And worst of all, for both neocons gearing up for a Russian or Iranian assault, or a Hillary-engineered run at Assad, Trump was a paid agent of Putin, and Russia was trying to interfere in the elections in the way that the U.S. interferes in nearly every election it can abroad especially in the Baltic states. This was all a farce, and even if Trump's one-time campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was indeed a Russian stooge, Trumpists voted for negotiation rather than threats of nuclear war. And for the right, Trump appealed to those who abhorred media collusion, party-rigged primaries, and brokered Manchurian candidates. Unfortunately for the left, Trump's conspiracies proved true, And unfortunately for the left, they have not learned from their mistakes. America is not racist, and it is not illiberal. It is far more liberal than the imprecisely named liberals. In fact, the turning point in the general election was probably the most visual one, and the one the Clintons most wished to purge from memory. The sight of Hillary Clinton collapsing unconscious after being carried Weekend at Bernie style to a black wagon pursuant to the 9-11 memorial being tossed inside as a stiff might get unceremoniously tossed into a hearse. The she-stumbled narrative plastered over the media was too much to take seriously. It completely fed into the Trump narrative, and she would never again emerge from the fiction section, since the official Clinton-Camp story was spun whole cloth from the conspiracy section, where we all had non-fiction evidence of what had actually happened. For a whole weekend, my wife and I could not talk about anything else. The conspiracy was all-consuming upon all sides. My friends and acquaintances, except for the Democrats who refused to confront reality, were abuzz with stories of body doubles and Parkinson's. In the absence of apparent truth, where was a mind to go? Sam Harris is actually right. Trump is a threat to the United States and to individual liberty. But then, the same was true of Obama and W. It was already true of Hillary Clinton. And what was true in her case was truth for her hubby, Bush Sr., and Reagan. It was true, well, it was always true. And this is why principles count for more than expediency and centrist amelioration, that lauded ability to cross the aisle and get things done. Far better it were to cross the aisle to cane one's opponent on the Senate floor, what we need is to get senators willing to cross the aisle in order to undo what all the other floor crossings had gotten done. But more than ever, the presidency of the past 16 years is too powerful for any man or woman. I agree with Sam Harris on this point, insofar as he recognized its applicability on one half of the equation. Once again, however, Obama wielded that immense power with incredible abandon and irresponsibility and not for the reasons that Kirchak supposes. That is, he just didn't kill enough Iraqis, run enough guns, arm enough rebels, start enough war. Iran, anyone? And drop enough bombs. The threat that the United States poses both to itself and to the world is too great to continue the legacy of the past 100 years, and most especially the last 16 years, and even then, even more pointedly, the last 8 years. We're about to see an astonishingly vindictive man sweep to power with not many checks on his power, Sam lamented in his podcast, The Most Powerful Clown. True, and who might we blame for this? There's a lot of blame to go around, but I think Trump's predecessor might claim a rather large part of the blame. Where in the bloody hell have liberals been for the past eight years of tyranny and mollycoddling? Did they apologize for the Lois Lerner scandal, or did they push for prosecution? Vindictive is not a partisan term. It applies always, since it is a mindset regarding one's willingness to overstep legal boundaries in order to get revenge and to silence dissent to imperial overreach. Trump might actually continue Obama's legacy. He might continue to oversee the torture of civilians offshore by outsourcing torture to Afghan and Iraqi security forces in order to get around legal and moral restrictions against the practice, as well as Obama's own man, by handing detainees to allies who have no compunction about torture. To kill American citizens abroad with secret and unconstitutional drone strikes while disregarding the protections of the Fifth Amendment. Both W. and Obama killed American civilians in Yemen, but W.'s murder may have been accidental where Obama's was calculated. To appoint a Secretary of State who will exacerbate the chaos in the Middle East, overthrow our country for laughs, and then run for president upon those credentials. Better termed, war crimes. To appoint a series of attorney generals with compromised integrity, willing to bend the laws for party politics and to run guns to every terror cell, including ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And drug cartel, remember Fast and Furious? On earth, while lecturing law-abiding citizens about their own responsible ownership of guns. To use the IRS as a weapon against free speech. (coughs) Lewis Lerner. To pretend to sovereignty over nations who never elected him as imperator. To spend domestic taxes, or more importantly, the next generation's income, in order to prop up every new Saddam Hussein that arises. To publicly rush to judgment over police shootings in the press, undermining the judicial branch and pardoning disorder. To continue to force his own subjects to buy products in a corporatist insurance cartel that has made health insurance so eminently unaffordable to turn his back on every campaign promise, to refrain from prosecuting the crimes and misdemeanors of the former denizens of the executive office and State Department, and thus to carry on the charade of fascist statecraft. Sam says that we must not have fascism, but insofar as fascism was an interpretation of socialist philosophy, we have had fascism since FDR, and especially LBJ, though we have been spared the jackboots, the institutionalized racial pogroms, and the funny little mustaches. Trump does not seem so foreign to me. Perhaps it is because nobody I ever voted for has won an election, <laughs> but perhaps it is because principles are an unwavering stake in the ground by which to grade every transgressor of liberty. This is not a normal moment, Sam thinks, pondering the times that Trump and his voters threatened to prosecute Hillary Clinton over the emails if Trump was victorious. But was it a normal moment when Obama threatened to prosecute those who had tortured prisoners of war and the George W. Bush administration from the CIA up to the president? That was the only highlight that I can recall from the Obama campaign, the only sentiment with which I agreed wholeheartedly. Those bastards should have gone to prison. But the liberals apologized for this failure of principle too, praising Obama for turning his back on the law by refusing to criminalize political opponents. Strange, I had always figured that Obama was talking about criminalizing torture, which is criminal under federal law, no matter the person who does it. Refusing to criminalize political opponents was actually the politicization of criminality. An odd thing to praise when one thinks about it. I must admit, I also agree with the locker-up sentiment coursed so much in Trump rallies. Obama ducked out on holding executive powers to task. Perhaps Trump will not. He need not do anything about the matter to prosecute his vendetta either. His attorney general can handle that business, and I certainly hope that he does. I hold out hope that the war criminal will go to prison or at least be indicted. And although she will not stand trial for that crime, for the bombings of Libya and the destruction of what was once one of the richest nations in Africa, albeit a socialist hellhole, certainly in no need of further misery, but instead for her clearly criminal and intentional violations of the law to circumvent FOIA requests and the Federal Records Act, as she did destroy evidence that was under subpoena. And never mind what will probably surface in the Clinton Foundation investigations, this would be like getting Capone for tax evasion rather than racketeering and murder. But the one will suffice, as will the other, I suppose. Again, democracy is not about principle and virtue. Democracy is about how the government should implement force and injustice. And perhaps Hillary will get her just due for the wrong reason. So be it. Thank you for listening to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. Please make sure to leave us a great review on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube, and check in from time to time to look for updates. Beginning in the year 2017, www.culture-anarchy.com will be podcasting issues of The Dial, our literary magazine, for audio consumption at the end of each month. Please send us poems and short essays for review to see your work in our electronic publication and hear it promulgated throughout the world. We do address cultural, political, and social issues with humor, subversiveness, levity as they pop up, and we will generally feature content with specific thematic structure. As we conclude our eight-part series, The Spirit of Market Anarchy, stay tuned for our new series which attacks the root of cultural Marxism in the Collegiate Humanities. A Rationalist Critique of Deconstruction, Demystifying Post-Structuralism, and Derrida's Science of the Non. Visit us at www.culture-nrp.com to view our submission guidelines. All things considered, I think Trump has a chance to be the least bad president in some regards in the past 30 years. For those who do not think about politics, who draw up ranks on left-right spectrums or provisionally strike harmony with conservative and liberal statecraft, as opposed to actual principles, perhaps Trump seems like a unique threat, an anomaly from out of left field. He will talk to foreign leaders that the champagne-drinking liberal elites scoff to acknowledge for fear of offending Chinese communists. European socialist and Islamofascist, He will thaw nuclear tensions by negotiating rather than playing high school social politics. He may help us retreat from pretensions of governing the world, and perhaps at least spend our tax dollars on wasteful enterprises here in America, rather than on $43 million gas stations in Afghanistan. This is the narrative I prefer to spin, and I hope that it's not just mere fiction. The presidency is truly a threat to peace and prosperity, And no man, and certainly not that horror show of a woman, is fit for the presidency, since the imperial presidency is unfit for a free country. Unfortunately for the welfare statists, the secular statists, and the unthinking liberal intelligentsia who lack the backbone to see something to criticize in Obama's centralization of power and alienation of it in international agreements we do not vote upon, because they get their news from comedians, the respectable old yellow press at CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and the Zakarians fresh from their socialist indoctrination camps, and God forbid, neoconservative trolls like Jamie Kierczek, and who triumphed in racially driven press coverage of a not particularly racially driven presidency to cover up for the failure of its promises and corruption, treating Obama as an idol in a progressive pantheon. Donald Trump inherits a vastly expanded presidency with a very right-wing Congress that is less likely to offer a challenge to the presidency and its innovations in arbitrary rule than even the effete Republican opponents who viscerally opposed Obama in rhetoric only, even when he vastly expanded presidential powers in actual practice, especially when he had a Democrat Congress, over which a new president, who they also oppose in rhetoric, will very much have control so as to further expand those powers, in actual practice. This, too, was a pattern that preceded Obama and W's libercidal presidency. I do not think that Obama intended to be the second worst president in U.S. history, but he was probably drawn into it by the horrible people with whom he surrounded himself. People that urged him to refrain from prosecuting torturers. People who urged him to cover up for Hillary's Libyan nightmare. People who urge them to avoid prosecuting the fast and furious gunrunners. People who urge them to arm rebels, who then turn their arms upon their fellow citizens and the American military who arm them. Confirmation bias is nonpartisan. And democracy has the unfortunate drawback that those who vote politicians into power forget to hold those same politicians to the fire when they violate their promises. Since voters do not wish to admit that democracy is a farce and that they, the voters, are the agents of their own oppression. This makes democracy a powerful tool of inflicting deep-seated guilt in voters for the gain of those in power. It is a psychological weapon of mass destruction, a religious exercise. And it is perhaps an exercise uniquely fitted for an American populace so drawn to these kinds of puritanical exercises and self-flagellation from its founding to Salem and ever onward. By way of example, Trump garnered so much criticism for his comments on Judge Curiel's inability to adjudicate fairly in the Trump University court case. A claim that might have some credibility considering Curiel's involvement with the Hispanic Latino Bar Association, which had signed a pledge to hurt Trump's business interests after his hilarious spate with Univision and Univision's hypocrisy. See my podcast on homophonophobes versus Trump. But again, Curiel should have recused himself not for the reasons that Trump supposes. Thus, Trump is again right for the wrong reasons. And yet, the whole question of defensive voting in the general election usually boiled down on both sides to Supreme Court appointments. If federal judges are unbiased, then why do parties split sides with regard to SCOTUS appointments? The answer is clear, and Americans tend to deny this truth because they want to so strongly and religiously justify their own opinions by anointing them with state power while ignoring how that power gets constituted. The Supreme Court is a partisan body that plays party politics. It is not an instrument of justice and constitutional authority. This perversion of justice is a plaything of party politics, and not so much of, well, principles. But conservative judges do have a tendency to rule more upon principle, even though they should renounce judicial review once and for all, though I do not believe that any of them would ever be so honest as to do so, and the president would never recommend such judges, just as Congress would never appoint judges with that kind of honesty and patriotism. Trump gives me glimmers of hope amidst the foreboding, where Hillary was a black wall of mass murder and death, with a rather large body count to her name, in Libya. Not in the tabulations of the conspiracy theorists who were counting the admittedly suspicious heaps of corpses that arose throughout the year around the Clinton camp. Big governments tend to suck, and statists who tend to expand the infallible powers of the imperial machine tend to suck absolutely. Especially when they are moral relativists who don't pay attention to political monstrosities of their own parties prefer a status quo of regime changes, endless wars, skyrocketing debts, debased currencies, and only cry foul when they're not the ones prosecuting endless wars and legislating morality by means of tyranny and economic democracy. We know that Republicans talk small government. The problem is that they never deliver on the promise. They do not provide a counterbalance to the socialists since the Republicans are merely conservative socialists who blow out spending in order to prop up the petrodollar and to stab off the state's admission of bankruptcy, the collapse of the socialist safety net and the ridiculous promises of domestic entitlements, and the hyperinflation that would probably result from a monetary collapse if America were to become energy independent. They are the warfare status of the welfare state, who swell the military-industrial complex and complain that we just aren't killing enough foreigners to kill our way into world peace and free trade. We know that Democrats talk kindness and humanitarianism and earn Nobel Peace Prizes for Pacific rhetoric while expanding wars, illegal drone strikes, indefinite detention, which is torture, and domestic spying. They are the party of good science, and their intellectuals give us 72 genders. Islamophobic theory, and trans-bathroom crusades, where the unscientific conservatives only acknowledge two genders, overestimate the Islamic threat while actually acknowledging it as a real problem, and pass stupid bathroom laws. And Trump, one might recall, said that Caitlyn Jenner could use whatever bathroom she liked in any of his hotels. That illiberal, xenophobic, blackguard. The problem with Democrats, though perhaps not the begrudging voters dragged along in defensive votes against Republicans, is that they are smug, forgetful, short-sighted, ill-informed, unskeptical, when their own party is in power, self-righteous boors who whip up popular agitation for increases in government power, and never repeal anything because they're afraid of firing people, even when they're raining fire down upon entire nations in the attempt to kill our way into world peace sufficient to justify that peace prize and to bear humankind into the progressive millennium. What results is a vast machine of waste, taxation, death, and self-righteous smugness that nobody actually wants, but which both sides defend from criticism by hearkening back to a group of founding farmers who worried about imperial overreach from abroad, oppressive taxes, imperialism, and the reign of fire and who loosely bound 13 colonies into a federal compact to escape admissions of fraud and bankruptcy in the years after the Revolutionary War, a contract that was in shambles by 1868. Nobody wants the government they get, and such is democracy, the system that is supposedly broken. If it is broken, it has been broken since the days of Aristotle, who had much to say about the progress of democracy, which pretty much sums up what we see in its progress today. It is a progress towards disorder and socialism, demagoguery, oligarchy, and eventual collapse, usually of a monetary failure. The system engineered by the socialists of the left and right is not a system. It is chaos, fraud, and force. This system isn't broken. The system was engineered to break civilization by destroying the marketplace because the social reformers are economic illerati and social engineers who fear admitting that what they've created is a system that cannot work. The culture of statism was rotten at its core. Society is bigger than church and state. The market, which is neither church nor state, is where freedom lies. And for freedom to flourish, the state must be held in check. The big government hacks were wrong, and the libertarians were correct. The market economy is where freedom lies. The state is not the agent of liberation. The market is liberation from the state. And insofar as there is a principle of liberty in the United States, it was the laissez-faire underpinning of the Bill of Rights. Instead, the statists duck their heads, confirm their biases, and plunge full force into economic annihilation. They know they can't turn back what they have wrought, since nobody in power will willingly give up that power. Nobody gets fired. The statists tell themselves that Donald Trump is a unique threat to the world, because he does not want to bomb it into oblivion. Because he has an exit strategy from war that might work. will undoubtedly leave the Middle East to endless squabbling, which is precisely where Obama and W. put it. And where Obama lacked the spine to simply call the experiment quits, after the 499,999th casualty of war. He seems to have thought that he just needed to kill one more Muslim, to drop one more bomb, and that would have done the trick to secure a peace or a victory, and to stop homegrown jihadi nutcases. Bush killed his millions, and Obama his half of millions. We are just one more interest rate cut away from pure bliss, and we have so much room to plunge into negative interest rates and bail-ins, in order to pave our roads with paper and debt. Trump stands in a unique position to join hands with Putin, in order to bomb ISIS into oblivion, then to leave the chaos that will result to Russia, Syria, and the UN, and then to call it quits and recall the U.S. occupation of the Middle East. It will be bloody and horrible. It will be as unjust as anything Obama and Bush devised. He may proclaim it a victory, since the terror is bombed into oblivion, and we see a gap in which we might excuse ourselves from the endless squabbling and tyranny, ignoring that what results will be something just as bad. He will draw us out of a war, again for the wrong reasons. He will proclaim victory, again for the wrong reasons. But if we are not the ones mass-murdering the Middle East day by day, I don't care if he has the right reasons. I can only hope he has the goal to be right for the wrong reasons and to know enough to spot some of the wrong reasons that led us into that sink pit of human despair. And I do not fear, but know, that the public will not learn the lessons they should have learned over the past 200 years. That even if someone is right for the wrong reasons, it is actually more important to hold that person to the fire for the catastrophes engendered by being wrong for the worst reasons where Trump succeeds for the wrong reasons, cutting corporate taxes by 20%, he will proclaim that it was his projection of economic strength, threatening tariffs and protectionism, that led to his success. And sure enough, the socialists will eat that garbage up as well, only emboldening the incorrigible masters. The world is drowsing in economic illiteracy, and as CNN drones on and on about an economic recovery and optimistic employment gains, gains which inevitably get reduced by a large factor every time they project new gains that get downgraded the next quarter, and so on, every quarter, every year, every presidency, and a booming stock market that is stretching out the last of the bubble in bonds and housing in order to wash clean Obama's disastrous fiscal policy before handing the death sentence off to his heir. The wakeful liberals actually believe what they read. Eight years of ZERP isn't washed away by a new regime. In American democracy, no voter wants the rival government propose. What results coalesces into perfect focus. The sharpening image of Obama himself with orangish skin and a ridiculous hairdo. What results is a situation in which liberals look past Hillary Clinton's destruction of North Africa. Her causal role in unleashing the migrant crisis upon Europe and America as the prime mover of international disorder her usurpation of centuries of culture, genetics, and familial bonds, the overturning of a more prosperous nation in Africa, and her constant abuse of power just to prevent Donald Trump from coming into power. Ignore the emails for a moment, and ignore Benghazi. Just look at what Hillary did to Libya. The tragedy was not so much that Ambassador Chris Stevens died, and with him several defense contractors, The tragedy is that she actually destroyed an African nation, fanned the flames, and boasted of the resultant carnage. What results is a situation in which Sam Harris thinks that those who hate free speech, the unregulated internet, liberty, and justice, are eminently qualified to hold the presidency because they have a proven 30-year record in positions of power associated with destruction and destitution, yet do not oppose the power in and of itself. Clinton is compromised. Harris has the wisdom to admit. How true. But she was at least the continuation of a status quo. And this was somehow a good thing? Donald Trump is uniquely unfit for the presidency, Harris concludes. This is a patently false statement. After taking an objective look at the presidency that for eight years has prosecuted petty gripes against rival dissidents through the IRS which has overturned a hampered market of health insurance in order to set up a fascist cartel, fascist by denotation, as corporatist, or to pave the way to a socialist single-payer system by transforming a risk-based market system into a welfare program, horror of all horrors, and which has expanded wars to transgress borders and even to abolish traditional borders abroad by unifying and magnifying the problem of terrorism by means of regime change, Drone bombings, heavy civilian casualties, and the usurpation of sovereignty over peoples who are not citizens of the nation, that pretends it represents its citizens, and which it clearly does not? After all of that, how could anyone ever imagine that a scoundrel is unfit for the presidency? Anyone uttering such a statement is guilty of spreading ethical falsehoods. The presidency is unfit for a free people. You may wish that a gentleman might temper that office. But that wish is a wish after all, and not an expectation. It is a narrative that we tell ourselves, as we recall our noble founding farmers. You must have principles before you can make the presidency fit for a free people. And in order to have those principles, you must temper a critical mindset not so easily swayed by disinformation. In the case of Hillary Clinton, she was the status quo, it is true. As Secretary of State, her Libyan campaign saw the deaths of thousands of civilians during the NATO bombing raids, and the usurpation of political machinery abroad resulted in the biggest displacement of populations in the ensuing chaos. This was staggering. She is also unfit for a job that is unfit for a free people. But then, we are not a free people. Moderately or comparatively free, perhaps. We are 25% to 40% unfree people. And the state is so kind as to spare us full oppression and confiscation. Trump is, perhaps, going to prove that he is no better than his predecessors. I am optimistic that he will be less bad than his two predecessors. But at least with Mr. Trump, the perhaps is qualified. With Hillary, there was no perhaps. She was feeding us a bread trail to war with Russia and Syria, with her no-fly zones, and Obama's prowling around Aleppo and Yemen during the pussy-grabbing news cycle... While ironically Obama's party was proclaiming that Trump was working with the Russians and threatening the world with nuclear war, laugh of all laughs, where nuclear powers were already drawing up the ranks at Russia's southwestern border and sending warships towards Yemen where our cruisers were supposedly under fire and our drones were knocking out missile installations to placate the Saudis. Hillary herself proved that she did not regret her Iraq war vote when she cast the die and crossed the Rubicon, toppled Libya, plunged the country into chaos where between 2,000 and 30,000 civilians have died, again, 1,000 of which perished in unutterable misery during the initial NATO bombing campaigns, and afterwards cackled to an interviewer about her resounding success, citing Caesar for inspiration. Wey me weedy et mortuous eist. A gruesome victory indeed. And as one looks at the state of the EU under the migrants and reflects upon Gaddafi's painful death, one wonders whether the EU is not beginning to feel a little something of that victory plunging upwards into its eastern hindquarters. The United States nearly elected a Caesar. If that can happen, then the presidency has failed, and the Constitution with it. Instead, the electorate promoted another pompous, self-serving narcissist who will very likely continue many of the horrors of the prior narcissist that preceded him. Hopefully, he can accomplish one minor good. The repeal of Obama's corporatist cartel of insurance firms and the restoration of interstate competition in order to remove upwards of 50 years of terrible health regulation. I have my doubts, as repeal is too often coupled with replace, where abolition is preferable. But there is a perhaps hedged somewhere in the midst where Donald Trump is concerned. Still, if interstate competition is restored, the mandate gets repealed, and so on, Trump can be somewhat right, and probably, again, for all of the wrong reasons. Well, perhaps it is true that Trump is uniquely unqualified for the office that is unfit for any free society. But should it be so, Mr. Harris? Should the presidency have the power that it has such that a Trump could be unfit for an office of that kind? Should the federal government have the power that it has? And if the answer is no, then how do we get that kind of decentralized power that would actually, once again, be fitting for a free people? By buying into the party system? By voting for our masters? By falling asleep when our own henchman is at the wheel? By dropping a few more bombs and taxing a few more billions? By maintaining a status quo of tyrannies? By pandering to and bribing a few more demographics with new welfare programs? Was it the free college we needed, so that our children should shoulder the burdens that we place upon them? Should we just legalize the illegals and stack the vote? Should we abolish the electoral college and thus alienate the entire center of the country to allow California and New York to select the president? It took a billionaire who was not dependent upon foreign government donations and big banks to confront the political machine completely purchased by foreign governments and big banks and to defy the mainstream media's influence upon the country by showing them to be partisan hacks with only the loosest attachment to journalistic integrity. Trump constantly tells us that he started a movement. But unless he has a string of billionaires lining up behind him that people do not suspect as brigands looking to get their share of loot, his presidency is likely the last of its kind in the near future. Trump was able to win because he could sell fun. I don't think it is my imagination to suppose that in his wake, the big money donors will once again resume their trade. They are already lining up behind the Trump presidency to ride in on his coattails and bow the rise the past four years, or perhaps the coming eight years. The critical mode is a mindset. It requires a combination of epistemology, ethics, morality, scientific knowledge, economics, and history. Should either Donald J. Trump or Hillary Clinton wield the kinds of power wielded so irresponsibly by Bill Clinton, W., or Obama? Perhaps Obama was a good man. He lost that credential when he did not prosecute the CIA or the Fast and Furious agent. I rooted for the unseating of the neocons, even though I did not vote for Trump, because I knew it would take a loudmouth, pussy-grabbing lout to unseat someone so utterly corrupt and contemptible as Hillary Clinton the destroyer of nations and countless lives, and to the slumbering left from its days. As the loonies cried, Islamophobia, because Trump questioned whether our country should import non-citizens, potential terrorists, and indefinite welfare cases, at $67,000 per head, in order to sop up the refugee chaos actually engendered by the woman that he ran against the loonies voted for a woman who prosecuted unnecessary bombing campaigns in order to, as they say in the mafia, put in some work by mass-murdering Muslims in Libya and Pakistan in order to kill them into kindness. The double standard was defended by the left because Islam is merely a demographic. Muslims are a minority party that can be bribed into voting for the reigning elites, and in the wake of the left's complete burial in the Trump slide which people like me saw coming a mile away as the smug liberal intelligentsia patted themselves on their backs for walking blindly into a wall because they are intellectually bankrupt and economically illiterate, deprived of sight by their progressive fantasies. They cry foul and racist and sling mud in typical fashion. Look for any excuse upon which to blame Hillary's loss, except Hillary's ignorance, bad acting, terrible ideals, and dreadful hawkishness ignoring that Hillary Clinton has actually destroyed more brown lives in Libya than any hurricane tearing a swath through Haiti, where, well, where Hillary Clinton was afterwards to exacerbate even that disaster through the machinations of her family's charitable foundation. Strange how all bad things tend to run through a Clinton. It's like a game of six degrees of Clinton. I'm willing to bet she even has ties to Kevin Bacon. Well, it turns out that Bannon's Breitbart discovered that she's about three degrees from Mr. Bacon, according to this reputable news source. Clinton and Obama were featured together in the WikiLeaks documentary, We Steal Secrets. Obama was on Between the Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis, who was in Tim and Eric's billion-dollar movie with John C. Riley, who did The River Wild with Kevin Bacon. Turns out Trump is not that big of a departure from the Obama legacy after all. This is the second celebrity president in the past three terms. Still, the left and its fake news outlets sling mud and cry abuse at the deplorables and their fake news outlets. Nobody has learned the lesson that absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And even those who fawn over absolute power, like the 24-hour news outlets who depend upon the constant generation of news, even fake news, they are corrupted by that power. As for whether we need a political center, somewhere between socialism and fascism, the solution is as bad as anything proposed. We require a market ethos, for diversity lies outside of the state, not within the proper balance of statist ideologies. We require an individualist party, a libertarian party actually radically devoted to its principles and willing to brave the Bourne and the media's criticism, which are really a corporate 24-hour news cycle deserving their own interests, but not necessarily a nation's interests, and therefore should be disregarded, and the willingness to make tough decisions like abolishing Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, which are paid through inflation, exported or channeled into a bound housing bubble, the destruction of the currency and savings, hence the eight years of 0% interest rates, to deal with an honest default on the debt, which arrives sooner or later, and sooner is preferable to later, to recognize the disaster looming on the petrodollar in the near future, either with Middle Eastern uprisings, a large war, or more efficient alternative energy, and the strength to return to a sound monetary standard not dependent upon our international bullying, and the strength of the military to destroy the Middle East in order to pardon our Keynesian money cranks for their baby boomer crimes. We need principles we need a better notion of what a government's proper role ought to be, not merely a blend of two terrible ideologies to stop gridlock. Gridlock is a problem if we want to cut government. But where two competing big government ideologies persist, the system's brokenness is the only thing saving us from socialist-inspired ruination. We can draw out the ruination, perhaps, if we continue to destroy the Middle East and expand into Africa and South America. We can feed this beast by constant destruction so long as people are willing to apologize for taxation's tyrannies here at home and humanitarian cases everywhere abroad in our new Catholic empire. But I'm betting on the failure of that empire as well. Again, I wander off the bed, kick off my slippers, and hope that the rest of the drowsing world will finally cast off this century and a half of nightmares, night terrors, and bad dreams and take up the burden of individual liberty, anarchy, culture, and right thinking. I go to sleep again in right thinking and shall leave the world to its drowsing simulacrum of reality. History does not give me much hope for the triumph of reason and cool economic calculation, since the destruction of currencies and the rise of democracy and imperialism and the proliferation of war and the usurpation of rights and the socialization of industry and the decline in economy and the prostitution of ethics go hand in 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 hand and so on through the hundred-handed chain of miseries where we always get stuck with that goddamn hot potato of debt proliferation, which is actually grabbing us by our genitals, whether we and our offspring consent to the grabbing or not. But as all economies built upon bubbles, government debt and shoddy paper monies tend to go by the wayside eventually, as they devolve into war in lieu of free trade, and not politically engineered free trade blocks, which are actually protection rackets. I will sleep soundly until you wake me next time and this old hairless ape lumbers up from his sleep to see what the day has brought me as I sip my coffee over breakfast and look into the left's woke unrealities. I will sleep soundly, Mr. Harris, knowing that Trump is in the presidency and not much has changed, except that Obama was finally kicked out of office. Your ship is burning and the bucket of water is in your hand. You have a choice. Put out the fire or bail out the ship. If you focus on the fire, the ship will sink. If you focus on bailing out the ship, you'll only prolong the burning. So don't bother dowsing the flames with the bucketfuls of water you're busy bailing out of the ship as the prow drives into the black ocean that is quickly rising up around you. Abandon ship, me Hardy. The flames will be dowsed. This ship will sink. That ship is sinking, bottom bound, and it won't stop at the surface. We have decades of decline ahead of us. We had better learn how to swim again and begin scanning the horizon for better shores. Weather is strong. Is that nice? Is that nice? AI. Bing Bing Bong Bong Bing 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 Bong. Just hit that zoo. So good. And I think you can see I'm having a good time. And, and we'll, we'll see both. More energy tonight, I like oh. that. Is that nice? We'll Take us to the promised land. Just hit that snooze. Bing, bing, bing. Let me go to sleep. All right. Until next time, we'll catch you on the flip side. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. You guys have got to try the cold shot. I had five pupils. What is the charge? Eating the a meal? A We spend so much old. money now that we have to borrow nearly three billion dollars a day from foreigners. That's a lot of talk. The wars never end. At least the world. At least the, least the world. world. You are listening to the culture a of a Manic chinese We can't cut anything until we change our philosophy <laughs> what about what government, government should Macron. do. At a school, she doesn't care about political agendas. But I she never care realized about the irrationality, she Middle Eastern politics, gender, the social economic wars. Never never, 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 the wars never end. They they attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq same, for same ten thing. years. What? Just, just, You've not in Culture. He is Python, the advice of the founders to follow a non-interventionist foreign policy. Stay out of entangling alliances. Fast and furious. Put this on television. But the, the building building nation building. building. Try getting it out. Say so that Let a man bend the law. The that and aim it at us. Aim that same law you guys have got to try the poison. I chose to watch upon entangling techniques. And this ain't bull. Let's have check, Hello. Check, check, Can check, I have some water? And that, ladies and gentlemen. Is the best that has been thought and said. Music provided by the Free Music Archive. Quantum Jazz's track, Jingle Jazz, shared by a Creative Commons license 3.0. Also, as always, featuring the beat of the Passion Hi-Fi on SoundCloud. Their tracks, Slaughter and the Spanish Winter. Follow them on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Give them a great rating.